Welcome to LifePoint Church. Our mission is to glorify God and make gospel-driven disciples by engaging people in the unexpected joy of a life more and more dependent on Jesus. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Would you pray with me? Holy Father, this passage is a beautiful gift. You've given us a window that looks upon the unfathomable goodness of Jesus and of your heart and love for us. And I pray that today, wherever we are coming today, however we approach this passage and this gathering of your church, I pray that you would give us a glimpse of just how good Jesus is. I pray this in his mighty name. Amen. Good morning. My name's Wes, and I'm one of the pastors here and a member of our preaching team. And uh, boy, what a beautiful passage. Um, we're going to get to this in a minute. Uh, I want to ask you to do something before we get started here. And I'd like you to consider writing down, you'll need something to write with, write down a list of good things in your life. Maybe it's from this week, maybe it's from this season, maybe it's retrospective and you want to look back and like, what are the good things in my life? Just want you to make a list of the good things that God has given you in your life. What in your life has been good? Uh, we, we try to build this kind of reflection into the, the life and culture of our family. Every night around the, the dinner table, 
we, we sh- ask everybody to share a high, a low, and a thankful, you know, from your day. What's, what's a high from the day? Something really, really good that was the, the, the high point of your day. What's a low? What's something that wasn't so good? And then what's something that left you thankful? And so I think it's good for us to reflect, and I want to invite you to reflect. Write a few things down. Make a list. What is good in your life? You know, as we continue to study the book of Philippians here, chapter 3, we see another great change of pace, another big turn both in tone and content, uh, kind of as we saw last week. Uh, Paul addresses a particular danger that faces the church at Philippi here. And in so doing, he also unpacks for us a much bigger spiritual concept, a much bigger principle, one that is at the core of the Christian faith. This is such a rich passage. I was telling Zach in the foyer this morning, um, I think I'm going to go again next week and just preach this passage again. There's so much here. We could, we could, we could keep coming back to this passage and do a whole series on this. Uh, but what we see here is this spiritual principle that understanding it is core to the faith. It's vital to truly knowing Jesus. And instead of slowing down like we saw in last week's passage, the travel itinerary of Paul's friends and the the, the friends of the Philippians, Paul here, he changes his tone and he gets really personal about what it means to truly know Jesus. Do you? Do you know Jesus? Truly, do you know him? Do you truly know Christ? Not just know of him, not just be familiar with him like in a, yeah, I've read some parts of the Bible and I grew up in church kind of way, but, but do you know him? Our, the big question that Paul answers, one of them in this text, is how can you tell if you truly know Jesus? How can you tell? Now, th- this is something we're going to see as we unpack this text that you, you can't fake truly knowing Jesus. It's not something that you can pretend. It's not something that you can just mentally ascend to or agree to. Truly knowing Christ is something else. And I'm excited to see uh, as we unpack what Paul has in this passage, his answer to this question, how can you tell if you truly know Christ? And so with that, let's go to the text. I want to invite you to open your Bibles. This We say this all the time, uh, but this week especially, this is a good week to have your eyes on your Bible, in your text. I'm going to put a bunch of verses up here on the screen, but it's good to see it all in the context and flow of thought here. So open up to Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. If you're using the Pewback Bible, as August told us, it's on page 981. And Paul begins here with a transition. He starts with the transition. This is, he's, he's changing directions. He says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Uh, you might think based on how this is translated in English that he's wrapping up, he's still got two chapters to go, so don't worry. We're not, we're not done yet. When he says finally, this is a, it's simply a transitionary word. It could mean moreover or still. It's like he's saying, Still, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. This command to rejoice, we see it throughout the letter, throughout the book, and and it's within the realm of rejoicing in Jesus that we get the rest of the richness of this text. Certainly there is reason to rejoice here. 
In verse 2, we see a strong warning, and this is, this is where we have this, this pretty dramatic change in tone. He says, rejoice in the Lord. To tell you this is good, it's safe, but verse 2, he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He uses this term, look out, three different times. It's like he's saying, be watchful, be aware. They're coming. The dogs are coming. The evildoers are coming. Look out for them. It's, it's hard to, to really translate into English how strong his language is here. This is a huge shift in tone. And, and when he says, look out for the dogs, this is not a guy that has pet puppies, all right? Like he's, in their culture and in their time, this was one of the strongest derogatory terms you could use for another person, to call them a dog. Dogs in their time were not well-groomed, well-trained, valuable members of the family like they are for us today. <laughs> No, they were dirty, they were mangy, they carried diseases, they, were, they, they often were, were very aggressive and dangerous. So when Paul says, look out for the dogs, he's not encouraging them to go find a new pet. He's, he's warning them about real danger. He goes on and he clarifies with the second warning, the second time he's repeated this, look out. He says, look out for the evildoers. He's like, you're not... You're not supposed to be looking out right now for somebody who simply is just a little bit ignorant of what's good. Be on the lookout for people who are truly doing evil. They are evil doers. They're dogs. They're evil doers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, he says. And here, with this third repeated warning, he begins to identify the group that he's talking about. Up till now, uh, his readers may not know, but now they're starting to get an idea. Those who mutilate the flesh. Okay, all right. And then verse three is a key verse for this passage and, and a clear distinction. Verse three, he says, for we are the circumcision. And here, it's become clear. Paul distinguishes himself and the Philippian church whom he's writing to, he says, we, we are the circumcision. And, and we know because of, of his mention of circumcision who he is warning them about. We now know that Paul is most likely talking about a group known as the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were a group of Jewish people who claimed to be Christians who preached a false gospel, a modified version of the good news of Christ. It was, it was Jesus plus, and we'll get to that more in a minute, but their basic teaching and theology was, was that in order to, to know God, in order to know Christ, you must become Jewish by following all of the Jewish religious rituals, laws, and observances, and you must do it perfectly with great effort. This was the, the message of the Judaizers. And we know here because Paul begins talking about circumcision that this, this is the group he's speaking of because one of their trademarks is they insisted that you could not know God unless, unless you were circumcised or of a family where, where the men were circumcised. Now, you may be wondering, what, what is circumcision and why is Paul talking about it so much? I'm really glad you asked. Circumcision was a religious ritual, a, a physical sign of the Israelite people's covenant relationship with God, and it was prescribed in the Old Testament law. Physically, 
it means the removal of the male foreskin. And, and what is that? Well, kids, ask your parents later at lunch, all right? I can say that because I have kids. I did say that because mine are gone today. Um, <laughs> but that's what it was physically. Spiritually, it, it, it was something that carried great spiritual significance. It was a symbol of the people's covenant relationship with God a symbol of total dependence upon him and a reminder that their covenant relationship with God meant shedding every other kind of devotion to all the other kinds of gods and things that you could serve. It was a physical reminder that we have cast aside everything else, that the only thing that's necessary is to depend on God, Yahweh. It was also a reminder that this covenant relationship with God for the Israelite people it brought a kind of transformation that reached to the very deepest places of their personal identity as a nation and as individuals. It's a reminder that God's people are to be set apart in every way, sexually, spiritually, and physically. Um, you know, in the Old Testament, we see uh, God warned against those who were physically circumcised, who had done the physical ritual, but, but had, had done so without the spiritual commitment. We see this in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 25. God warns, he warns of, of punishment for those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. And then we see uh, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, true circumcision was defined as, as a circumcision of the heart. So all of this talk, the, the physical circumcision, the, the ritual itself was meant to be a reminder of, of a deeper kind of transformation and, and spiritual reality. And we see in Deuteronomy that God calls his people not to just go through with a physical ritual, but in fact to allow God to transform and change their hearts. Now, I think it's worth noting something here and pointing something out. Paul is, is writing to a church that's comprised almost entirely of Gentile Christians. Now, the word Gentile simply means these people were not Jewish. That means that, that they were almost certainly none of them physically circumcised. Therefore, when Paul says, for we are the circumcision, He's talking to a group of people that have not had this physical ritual performed He's talking about a spiritual reality. He's saying in an Old Testament, spiritually faithful kind of way that he, along with the Philippian church and all the other true believers, whether physically circumcised or not, we are the true circumcision, those who truly know and follow Jesus. The Judaizers taught that the way to know God was to legalistically follow all the religious laws, especially circumcision, and their confidence was in the efforts of the flesh. Their theology boiled down to you need the work of Jesus plus the work that you can do to be religiously pure and that is what equals salvation and equals knowing God. That was their theology and it's not the gospel. 
So what does Paul mean by in the flesh? If you look through this whole passage, he mentions the flesh four different times, different places throughout all of this. We see it here in verse three where he's making this distinction between, between the Judaizers and, and the true believers. What does he mean by in the flesh? The, this word flesh in Greek is a word that literally means body or portions of meat. You might describe it, use it to describe like a, a piece of steak that you were gonna grill or you could use it to describe uh, your physical being your physical body and in the Bible when Paul talks about things that are of the flesh when he talks about those things he's talking about any human achievement that we accomplish within our bodies using our our physical being uh, that is is done without dependence upon God the kind of effort that glorifies ourselves instead of glorifying Jesus that's what he means when he says in the flesh. It's a reference to the part of our identity that is selfish and self-focused, the part that can, that can put on appearances and play a role and, and make it appear as though we are faithful. And that's what the Judaizers did. They, they on the outside maybe looked like they were really faithful because of the way they observed all of these religious laws. Let's get back to Philippians 3.3 in 3, this clear distinction. Paul, remember, he says, for we are the circumcision. You and me, you people in the Philippian church who truly know Jesus, we are the true believers. And then he unpacks three things that set them apart as the true believers who truly know Christ. Remember our question? How do you know if you truly know Christ? Well, we're starting to get at the answer here in verse 3. The first thing, he says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. We worship by the Spirit of God. God's Holy Spirit indwells them, and it's unmistakable. The Spirit of God, his presence is unmistakable with the people. This is how, this is how the, the new church in Acts, how they realized and finally understood that God intended for Gentiles, non-Jewish people to, to be welcome into the church because they couldn't deny the presence of God's Holy Spirit among them. Now, we, we don't practice a really charismatic form of, uh, of, of worship here, but this is still true today of true believers. In fact, an example I can share, about 10 years ago, I had the privilege of helping to lead uh, our high schoolers in a short-term mission trip to Japan. It was awesome to hear, hear about God's calling on your life to Japan, uh, Davida, and, and it was great to go. And we served with Janet, who's one of our current uh, partners who's there, and we helped with Zao Christ Church, which is a partner church of ours over there. And part of this trip, we went with the church to a coastal village that had been decimated by the tsunami, just destroyed. I mean, like, the majority of the people who lived there were killed. One day they're there, the next day they're gone. And this church had been, had been going at least once a month, and, and early on more than that, in going and helping to rebuild and helping people to recover and sharing the gospel. And, and we went with the church and our mission during the, the, the days that we spent in this village was to bring encouragement, a ministry of encouragement. And we had the, 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 the privilege, some of us did, of spending an evening in the home of a man who kind of become the de facto leader of the community. And he was not a believer. Um, he, he was not a follower of Christ. I, I, 
he may be now. He seemed like he was close. <laughs> um, but we had the chance to hear, and we were asking him what it was like to have all these different groups coming to help out. And he, he told us, he said, you know what? He said, I can tell when Christians come. And we're like, oh, is that because, you know, they talk about Jesus? He says, no, no, no. When they pull up and get out of the car, I can tell if they're Christians or not. And we, we're working through some language barriers, so it's kind of difficult to, to, to get to, but we, we kept asking him questions about this. And when it came down to it, he said he could sense spiritually when, when somebody who he didn't know pulled up and got out of the car, he could tell if they were followers of Jesus. And we told him, he said, that's the Holy Spirit. That's the presence of God's Holy Spirit. That still is true of you and me today. I had somebody tell me the same thing walking into a coffee shop a couple of weeks ago. Just recently, a man started up a conversation with me. His name's Benjamin. He, he is living at the mission right now downtown, and, and, and he struck up a conversation. We talked for 10 or 15 minutes, and he said, I knew as soon as I saw you that you'd talk to me, that you would actually see me and know that I was a person and talk. I, I could tell as soon as, as soon as I saw you. I said, well, Benjamin, that's the Holy Spirit. That's the power of God. And that launched into a whole other conversation. Please pray for my friend Benjamin. I, I'm hoping to see him here. He said he would come to worship sometime. They, this is one of the things that sets apart true believers who truly know Christ. They worship by the Spirit of God. God's Holy Spirit is present. And the second thing we see here, they glory in Christ Jesus. The true circumcision, the true believers, worship by the Spirit of, the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. At every turn, their aim is to make much of Jesus. If there is a win or something to celebrate, we don't just celebrate what, what you and I have done. We celebrate God's good glory and what he's doing. We point to the author of all that is good. We glory in Christ Jesus. We're not aiming to make a name for ourselves. This is one of the marks of a true believer. We've seen this previously in Philippians. This is a, an ongoing theme throughout this book. And then we see here at the end of verse 3, finally, he says, we, we, the true believers, the true circumcision, worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. You cannot be faithful to Jesus Christ if your confidence before God is in yourself and what you can do or have done instead of being in Jesus. If your plan when you meet God face to face is to say, hey, I was a pretty good guy. You ought to let me in. In fact, I think I was more good than I was bad. You may be right. <laughs> you may be a pretty good person. But our confidence, if we truly know Jesus, if we're, if we're truly saved, our confidence will never be in our flesh, in our own goodness. It'll only be in the work of Jesus. Paul says this. He says, you know, this identifies this as one of the markers of true faith. And it's like he then responds to what he knows is going to be uh, an argument from the Judaizers. How are they going to respond? Look at verses 4 through 6. They're going to say, well, you're just saying that because you don't have what it takes. You don't measure up, Paul. And he says, well, if anybody has reason for confidence in the flesh, it's me. What? Look at this. 
this, this big old humble brag here. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's looking at the dogs, at the evildoers. He says, I've got you beat at your own good game. I was gooder than you all. I don't know if you're allowed to say that. That may not be a word. He goes on and he lists his resume. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. That was what the law prescribed. Of the people of Israel, part of God's chosen nation. Not just of the chosen nation, though. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe that gave Israel its first king. A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. That means that he didn't just obey the law. He actually obeyed a lot of extra laws that they set up so that they'd never get close to breaking the law. So if they messed up, they would, they would still not actually break the law. I mean, this, he was serious. He was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He says, I've got you beat at your own game. But look at his confession in verse 7. <laughs> what a beautiful turn. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain I had, all the good that I accomplished through all that effort within my flesh, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. His gains, his accomplishments, though they're greater than anybody else and any other people, they were worthless for the sake of knowing Jesus. All of it was a loss. Literally, it put him at a disadvantage. It set him back from knowing Christ. I couldn't help but think about as I read this. Maybe you're familiar with Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. It's such a fascinating parable. You know, we think it's all about the son who, who, who moves away and lives this wild life, and it is, but it made me think of the older brother. You know, that the, the father is having the celebration because the son that was lost has been found, and the older brother is over here, and his goodness is keeping him from the father. He's, he's, he's stewing outside with all of his friends and he's, he, he says, Dad, I've, I've always been good. I've always done the right thing. His very goodness made him bitter and kept him from the Father. I wonder if, if, if that's sort of what Paul means here too. All the gain that I had, all the good that I accomplished, it left me at a disadvantage for the, the sake of knowing Christ. It actually held me back. It actually held me back. And then he's given his, his personal testimony here, and then we get the big spiritual principle. Verse 8. Look at verse 8. This is key. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Wow. It's not just his religious accomplishments that he counts as a loss. Every good thing in his life, anything he's experienced, everything he counts as a loss because, not because it actually was bad, but because the goodness of Christ far surpasses all of it. 
Look, if you look at verse seven and eight, Paul doesn't say that the law itself is worthless or bad. And in verse eight, he doesn't say that, that everything, all these good things that we experience in life are actually worthless. He just says he counts them in both places. I, he counts them. He regards them. He esteems them. He judges them to be worthless. When he compares them to how great Jesus is, all of these other things begin to pale in comparison to knowing Christ. Here's the principle. No good thing we can do or experience is nearly as good as the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. It's true, amen. You can't enjoy a meal. You can't have a career or a family or, 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 or taste a beverage or there's nothing you can experience. There's no sex you can have. There's no perfect marriage you can, you can be engaged in. There's nothing good on this earth that you can experience that is nearly as good as the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Nothing measures up. All those things are still really good, but they're nowhere near as good as Jesus. If it were like a bar graph, forgive me, I love the graphs, all right? And I, I don't have one up here. If it were a bar graph, imagine a bar graph and all the other stuff that's really good. The very best thing that you have is like way down here and then, and then the bar next to it for how good Jesus is is way up here. Like that's the difference. Or maybe you're not a graph person. Maybe you're more of like a, like show me something right in front of me. So this earth, right? You can't measure the weight of all the rock that makes up this planet. The rock and the trees and the water, if you took all, you can't measure the weight of that. We, we can hardly wrap our heads around how big this earth is. I just drove 1,200 miles across part of the country and it felt real big, okay? It's, it's bigger than that though. When we put this earth next to the sun, as big as the earth is, look how small it is compared to the mass of the sun. This is like comparing the very greatest things we can do or experience on this earth to the greatness of Jesus. And it's incredible. And Paul, as he, as he warns against the, the danger of the Judaizers and warns against what it means to, 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 to put a, a, something in front of somebody that keeps them from seeing the greatness of Jesus, he warns against it. And then, and then he, he, he turns and he says, but once you get a taste of just how good he is, once you get a taste of his goodness, you'll see, you, you'll see just how grand it is. So back to our big question today. How can you tell if you truly know Christ? You know, Paul's given us these three things in verse three that, that are marks of true faith, of true believers. How can you tell if you truly know Christ? Take a look at your list. Hopefully you made the list. If not, do it later. If you don't have the list to take out and look at, think through what are some of the very best things, the, the forgive my, my grammar, the goodest things in your life? What are the very, very best things that you've experienced in your life? And I'm not asking you to answer this question to, to nod your head or to raise your hand or anything, but, but truly ask in your heart deep down would you trade the very best things in your life, the very 
the very best gifts that God has given you in this life, would you be willing to trade them in order to know Christ? Because here's, here's Paul's answer to this question from this passage today. How can you tell if you truly know Christ? When we truly know Christ, we will treasure him most. When we truly know Christ, we treasure him most. We don't just agree that Christ is better. When you have truly seen his goodness, when you've truly seen just how great he is, you almost don't even have to make a decision that nothing else is as good. It just pales in comparison. When we truly know Christ, we treasure him most, most of all, greater than any other thing we could do or experience on this earth. Would you gladly, would you eagerly suffer the loss of all the good things in your life in order, in order to gain Christ? God has ordained each of us as followers of Jesus as missionaries. You may think you're an insurance salesman or a contractor or a stay-at-home mom, you're a missionary. We are confronted with this question day by day by day. If we are going to be effective in carrying the gospel to a world that desperately needs it, we need to show people just how good Jesus is. Are you willing, are you willing to, to turn over Suffer the loss, as Paul says, of every good thing in your life that isn't Christ in order to be found in Jesus, in order to be faithful to him, to know him and the power of his resurrection. For the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, would you trade your financial security? Would you trade the, the deep down desired expression of your sexuality and gender? Would you set that aside and say, God, I'm gonna embrace your design because knowing Jesus is greater than feeling comfortable on this earth. Would you set aside your dream picture of what marriage or parenting or your career would look like for the sake of knowing Christ? It's interesting, in this passage, Paul warns the Philippian church against adding any bit of fleshly effort to the saving work of Jesus in order to know him. But then it's like he goes on to say, but hey, once you let go of all, all of the ways that you think you can get to Christ, and then once you get a taste of just how good he is, you'll gladly go even further than any religious law or ritual would require, and it won't be required of you. You'll gladly suffer the loss of all of these things and give it all up for the sake of Jesus. That's how good he is. That's how good he is. The bad news here is that if you're honest, like me, <laughs> there's probably a few things on your list you'd have a real hard time letting go of. You know, Paul's writing this. He's writing this from death row. He has already suffered the loss of all these good things. He's taken those steps of faith that require him to rely upon Jesus and Jesus alone. And he's, he's in taking those steps, has found and experienced the goodness of Christ in a big way. The good news is 
That is, you honestly evaluate how well you truly know Christ based on whether or not you truly treasure him most. The good news is there is more of his goodness left for you to experience and you to see. And Jesus loves to show you just how good he is, just how faithful he is. He longs to reveal himself to you more and more. Yes, even you who've been in this church, who have have known Christ for decades, for your whole life you feel like you've known him, you are just scratching the surface of the goodness of Christ. The way we get to see more of his goodness is by taking steps of faith to depend on him more and more and more. Depending on Jesus is the very definition of having faith. And that's where Paul lands the plane in this section. He opens by calling the believers to rejoice in the Lord and he closes by saying, I want you to rely in faith upon Jesus. That concludes LifePoint Church's podcast. For more information about our church, visit sharethelife.org.